Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday at 4 o'clock again, and uh, we are ready for a another session of our Wednesday afternoon slash evening Bible study. Um, this is the fourth of four lessons that John Clayton presents on what he terms the paranormal, which is his generic term for anything that is outside of, I guess we could say, the natural order. What we have come to know and experience in this life and what we find in the scriptures that back it up to say that um, there are things in this world that we can expect from day to day. Uh, gravity. Um, human beings talking to one another rather than spirits from another world or another realm talking to one another. Um, and as he would say in this particular lesson, and he set us up in other lessons earlier, this lesson is entirely devoted uh, to demons and, and demonology. And he talks to us, uh, tells us that he has been uh, present in some exorcisms. And uh, we will uh, put parentheses around those exorcisms because, uh, as he will convey to us, um, Clayton believes, and, and I'm with him on this, that uh, demons um, were for a specific time, just as miracles were for a specific time. They were one of the things that Christ demonstrated his power over uh, and later passed that on to his apostles for them to demonstrate their power over. But it wasn't just to demonstrate their power over physical things. It was to demonstrate that the authority, the source of that power, was the same authority that provided them with the words of life that they were delivering to those people at that time and to us as we have recorded in the scriptures. So um, as he has talked about a variety of types of paranormal things, even went into the Queen Mary uh, last week, I believe, uh, about the supposed ghosts that live there. Um, he is doing a very good job to uh, show us that uh, these are not things that are, are real and that we should not automatically jump to an explanation for these types of things being the paranormal. It could be that those who are involved have other motives um, and that there are natural explanations for these things. So let's see what he has to say about demonology. We're having just a little bit of trouble with the volume. While he's doing that, I'll share with you something that, uh, just so we won't have dead air here, um, October 24th, a week or so ago, 
there was a headline in one of the uh, online newspapers that I read, and it says, uh, Archbishop of Portland exorcises the city. Um, and this is not, this is not satire. This is uh, a newspaper article, and it says, Portland, as, as you may or may not know, is, is, has been having a considerable number of riots and, and uh, non-peaceful protests um, with looting and burning and uh, all sorts of things going on um, since the death of George Floyd back in May. And it says, the Archbishop of Portland performed the rite of exorcism last week over the city that has been roiled with continuous unrest since the death of George Floyd in May. Archbishop Alexander Sample, who has served as Archbishop of Portland since 2013, held a Eucharistic procession through the city last weekend and also prayed over it the exorcism against Satan and the fallen angels, quote-unquote, from the Roman ritual, according to the Catholic News Agency. He backs off a bit when he says this, I wasn't trying to suggest that I think the city of Portland is possessed. <coughs> My question would be, then why were you doing what you were doing? Was it just symbolic? And once you ev invoke this exorcism against Satan and the fallen angels, isn't that a suggestion that you were taking it rather clearly as fact? We're going to pause and see if our sound is back. I may return to this. Okay. Welcome to the Does God Exist series, program number 16, Demonology. This entire series the last four videos, including this one, have dealt with the paranormal. The paranormal deals with things that cannot be scientifically investigated. It deals with things that are not a part of our natural experience. And as we have tried to point out in the previous three programs, that doesn't mean that we're discounting things that cannot be scientifically investigated. There are many things that cannot be investigated scientifically that are real. That's true in psychology, but I think it's also true in the physical sciences. There are many things physically that happen to us, many things that take place that we will never understand. Quantum mechanics, things like string theory, brain theory, multi-universes, all these types of things which we have talked about, for things that we don't close ourselves off to. And I, we should not close ourselves off to anything without considering them, without looking at the evidence. But in this list of different areas of the paranormal, one of the questions that always jumps out, and one of the things we need to look at, is the questions of demons, exorcisms. When the exorcist came out back in the 20th century, it sort of stimulated a lot of interest in demonology and exorcism. Many, many religions, many people in the Protestant religious area have promoted various understandings of demonology and exorcism. The priest who advised 
the filmmakers of The Exorcist was a man by the name of the Reverend John Jaden Cola. And he gave us a pretty good definition of demonology and exorcism. The rite of exorcism is reserved for priests of wide experience and maturity and high morality. In the case of demonic possession, the use of free will and intellect has been suspended. The person is no longer responsible for his actions. Good definition. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the hyperactive kid that gets into trouble with mother. We're not talking about the old Flip Wilson deal, the devil made me do it. We're talking about the question of, is there, in fact, a circumstance where our free will can be taken away from us, where we're no longer responsible for our actions, a force that is beyond our capacity to withstand, has occupied us. There are many, many verses in the New Testament that deal with this. Nicola quoted the Old Testament and the Apocryphal. And in the Apocryphal books, you have a number of statements that connect with this question of demon possession. This passage in Tobit 8, verses 2 and 3 is an example of that. I think it's important to understand that in the biblical perspective, which is what we're concerned about here, there is reason to discuss this issue. We understand from the Bible that everything is a product of God's creation. Psalms 90 tells us that God is the author. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 17, we're told that God is the immortal, invisible, the only God, so that all things that are present in the cosmos come from him. Colossians 1, beginning with verse 16, makes the same statement. And notice that we're told that things visible and invisible, that's part of the picture, rulers or authorities. God is the creator of all these things. And in our discussion here, we're not discounting the concept of God. We're asking questions about demons themselves. We know that Satan is real. The Bible portrays Satan as one who has deliberately chosen evil. In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 6, we're told we need to be careful that we don't fall into the condemnation which the devil incurred. So that implies the concept that the devil embraced evil. Interesting thing about the difference between the devil and us is that the devil is timeless. And that means that once he chose evil, there was no such thing as time to change his mind. He had embraced a timeless opposition to God. We're also told that this is where sin started. Second Peter 2 and verse 4 says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, so angels have sinned. They have chosen to reject God. Jude 6 verse talks about angels which did not keep their own domain. So we know that there are beings that have chosen to reject God. We know that there is an interaction going on between these beings and God. Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9 talks about that. Isaiah 14, beginning with verse 11, talks about it. And in Job, the first and second chapter, we see an exchange between God and Satan over Job. 
in our discussion about why God created man, we reviewed that discussion. What's interesting is that the discussion of demons is virtually entirely a New Testament phenomenon. The Hebrew word for demons is only used twice in the Old Testament, once in Deuteronomy and once in Psalms. If you read those two passages, you'll find out in all cases they're talking about idols. In the New Testament, demons are very prevalent. Many passages deal with demons. Sometimes the forces the demons could exert were exerted on helpless human beings. In Matthew 17 and verse 18, the discussion is about a small child. The Greek word used indicates that it was an infant that was involved in the possession. In Mark 9, beginning in verse 24, the Greek word refers again to a small child, a helpless, sinless individual that was taken over by a demon. In Mark 7, in verse 25, the Greek word refers to a very small daughter, again, a helpless individual. Sometimes the manifestations of demon possession were very sedate, very quiet. In this passage, in Matthew 12 and verse 22, the devil was rendering the individual blind, unable to speak, and so the process of change enabled both speaking and seeing. And when you look at that description, you have to realize to be able to see when you couldn't see, to be able to speak when you couldn't speak, is a miraculous thing. It, you, you can't just correct the physical phenomena. There has to be a change that is not of a natural process. In Mark, the first chapter, there's a description of demon possession that sounds very much like an epileptic seizure. Uh, that the, the being tore him, it convulsed him. And we see that the uh, Greek word that is used in this passage is parasso, which literally means to convulse or to tear out. And the, the, the parent in this case indicates that the, the child was completely out of control, that uh, he would fall into fire, that he would fall into water. We also see that many times the demons were violent and dangerous. We talked in our discussion about the paranormal in program 14 about the situation of the vagabond Jews who conducted a show and were attacked by the demon that was active. In Matthew 8 and in Mark 5, there are violent and dangerous circumstances involved with demon possession. But many times, like Acts 16 and 16, the demon simply gave special gifts, in this case able to predict the future. And sometimes the explanations were very strange. In Luke, the 8th chapter, beginning with verse 26, there's this story about demons entering pigs, and the pigs running into the lake and drowning. And I don't pretend to have an explanation for all that. It's not a natural process. You can accept it or reject it on faith. But I, I, I think it's important to understand the variety and all of the unusual things that were a part of this process. When Jesus was here, he gave the capacity to overcome all of this. Not only did he give alternatives to demon possession, but he gave his apostles the ability to overcome them. In Luke 9, verse 1, we read that he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power over devils and to cure diseases. In Mark 16, beginning with verse 17, a similar type of command is given about how you could recognize at that time people that could cast out devils. 
Many times the process of exorcism was a very quick and easy process. In Acts 16, the case about the person who could predict the future, all that happens is Paul turns to the Spirit and says, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. That's it. No ritual, no elaborate process, no massive change. And it's important to realize that there are some good, solid reasons for us to understand that while this happened in the past, it does not happen today. And I want to share with you some reasons why I'm very convinced that isn't the case. The first point I'd like to make is that the whole concept of man having free moral choice is denied by demon possession. At the time in which Jesus lived, there were ways in which people had alternatives to being taken over by this very ugly, satanic force. But in the New Testament, in teachings to the church, the time in which we live, we read statements like Philippians 2 and verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if a demon can take me over and cause me to do things that of my own free volition I wouldn't do, then this statement is simply nonsense. There's no point in telling people to work out their own salvation if something can come upon them they have no power to resist and deny them the opportunity to do what the passage says. When we read the New Testament, passages like 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, we're told that we are to study to show ourselves approved unto God Workmen that he did not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Again, if I can be taken over and caused to be destroyed by some force I have no capacity to resist, then studying the word of God is of no value. It offers no solution to the process that I'm being threatened with. In John 20 and verse 31, we're told something about the reason for all this. These things are written. All the stories, all the accounts, all the records about demon possession. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life through his name. Through Christ, we have the capacity to resist any force that comes along. We have the capacity to live successful lives. <coughs> and we have the capacity to actively work and do the things that will bring us to a relationship with God that we desire. What profit is it if I have faith and if there's nothing I can do if without works my faith is of no use? I'd also like to point out to you that the prophecies of the Old Testament predicted that demons would cease to exist. In Zechariah 13, beginning with verse 1, we have a messianic prophecy. I want you to notice what is said here. It shall come to pass, looking ahead to Christ and to the coming of the Christian system, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and I will cause the unclean spirits to pass out of the land. When Christianity came, Jesus made a complete destruction of every work of Satan. 1 John 3 and verse 8 indicates clearly that no power Satan has was going to be able to defy Jesus Christ. So all of the prophecies suggested this would end. 
Colossians 2 at verse 15 repeats that concept. We're also given a cure for Satan that denies demon possession. In James 4 and verse 7, we're told, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If Satan can miraculously and spontaneously cause a demon to possess me and take away my capacity to be saved, my capacity to live as God has called me to live, my capacity to serve Jesus, then that statement isn't true. It's also important to understand that our purpose in existing is connected to this question of demon possession. Satan is powerful. We're not denying the power of Satan. There's a war going on between good and evil. We've discussed that in a discussion about why God created man. Passages like Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 12, tell us that there is this struggle taking place. And that there will be, in fact, the capacity for us to resist. And 1 Peter 5, beginning with verse 8, talks about the fact that this purpose will be accomplished. Notice the statement that is made. Be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the Lord. We're told to resist. We're not told that there is no hope. We're not told there is no capacity for us to overcome evil. And we're also told that this would be accomplished in all the people that are in the world. In Hebrews 4, verse 15, reference is made to Jesus Christ. And notice what the passage says. We do not have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And notice this. But was in all points tempted as we are. Yet without sin. Was Jesus demon-possessed? You know, I've never met anybody that would suggest that, demon, that Jesus was demon-possessed. But if that's a reasonable threat for me today, and if Jesus has been tempted in every way as are we, then we would have to take that position. I'd also like to point out to you that, that the alternatives given to Christians are inconsistent with demon possession. We've talked a little bit about 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God makes a promise. Notice the first statement is that there is no temptation taken you but is common to man. If you're going to say that demon possession is present in the world today, then all men should be affected by it. And I don't believe anybody would maintain that. But also notice, we are told we will not be tempted above that which we are able to endure, but with the temptation there will be a way of escape. Is demon possession a thing that would provide a way of escape? I know there are people that claim they can can perform exorcisms and they're not just in the Catholic Church but certainly that is not available to everybody if we believe that demon possession is a common effect upon human beings my next point that I'd like to make is if demon possession were a real risk for Christians living today and for Christians living in the first century then wouldn't you think the Bible would have taken great pains to warn people about it you know you can go through the New Testament and you can see warnings about everything there's warnings about false teachers there's warnings about people who would be presenting the Gnostic point of view there's all kinds of warnings about people that would have false motives, Judaizing teachers, and on and on and on, warning after warning after warning. But there's no warnings about demon possession. 
Nowhere is there a statement that says, be careful that you don't put yourself in a position of being able to be possessed by a demon. It's just simply not there. And if this was a rational problem, a real threat to Christians, then surely there would be a warning. But my last point, and, and one that I want to bring to your attention, is the fact that my own witness is that demon possession is not real, that exorcisms do not occur. And I have witnessed a number of exorcisms, and I have been involved with a number of people who were supposedly demon-possessed. Now, I, I, I do want to emphasize here that, that there, there are some touchy areas in this. Mental illness can be an issue here. And there are people who say, well, if you're mentally ill, it's because a demon possessed you. I don't believe that's true. I think there are chemical causes. I think there are environmental causes to mental illness. And that doesn't minimize it. It's terrible. There are awful things that people experience as we have seen the growth in Alzheimer's, as we've seen things related with alcohol fetal syndrome, as we've seen all of the things that take place, we realize how pollution has impacted and affected all of us. And I think we're going to find more and more of that is present. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about an immediate demon possession that takes place with somebody and takes away their free moral will. My experience is that the demon possession is not real and the exorcisms are not real. I've seen exorcisms produced. In all of those cases, the exorcism process was a matter of hours. I have people who go on and on saying, I adjure you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her for 15, 20 minutes, an hour, two hours. And then the person that they're trying to get the demon out of goes into a, 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 a convulsion. They're screaming, they're foaming at the mouth, their head is back. It's, it's scary. It's dramatic. But my opinion is that it is a psychological manipulation. It is not something that is real. It's not like the ones that I read about in the Bible. It's not like Paul saying, I adjure you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. It's important to understand there's a radical difference. I've done follow-up studies on some of these people and haven't found them to be better off a month later than they were when the exorcism was performed. Sometimes it's been an out-and-out -out scam where the person was simply going through an act for the purpose of reinforcing the belief system that they entertained. And I think it's important to realize that there have been numerous studies that have been involved with this. The fundamental point that we want to leave you with and the point that needs to be understood is that God has called us to be responsible for how we live and what we do. If we are lost, it is not going to be because the devil made us do it. It is going to be because we voluntarily chose to reject God, to not obey God, to obey forces, alternatives, in contradiction to God. Now, how God deals with people who are mentally deranged is not an issue that we're talking about here. And I want to keep coming back to that. I know that some of you have had awful things happen to people you love. What I'm saying to you is that God did not allow some satanic force 
or some demonic spirit to come in and take your loved one away from you mentally or spiritually or emotionally. There are agents in our planet which have caused this. There are chemicals. There are things that man has done. And I believe these offer explanations that are much more reasonable. The fact is, we are free moral agents. We make our own choices. The devil is not given the capacity to take us over and to remove our free moral choice. And it's important then that we allow God to work through us. Now, we can talk about all the things that are present in our culture to push us away from God. Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. We're not in any way denying the power of Satan. But we are denying the power of Satan to take away our free moral choice. We serve a God who cares and who is true to his promises. His promises are that if we will face the temptations we have in life and look for the way out and take the way out, God will provide them for us. The result of living as God has called us to live enables us to deal with the difficulties in this life. And the life we have beyond this is complete separation from all of the evil that is around us. But let me encourage you not to be taken in by those who would suggest to you that you're not in power, that you're not in control. God is real. You have a choice to make. But the next question is, okay, which God? Well, we've been talking about the Bible here, but why the God of the Bible? Why Jesus Christ? In our next program, we'll take a look at that question. Well, that's very interesting, uh, isn't it? Um, I'll just finish briefly uh, with my uh, bishop, Archbishop uh, of Portland. He says, I wasn't trying to suggest that I think the city of Portland is possessed. It's not that at all. It's just a prayer of blessing prayed by the clergy, especially a bishop, over a community just asking that all the influences of the evil one um, be driven driven away. Um, so I'm I'm guessing, uh, even though he invoked what um, the Catholic Church calls the exorcism against Satan and the fallen angels from the Roman ritual, uh, it was more of a symbolic um, gesture or statement on his part. Um, while the Bible does have examples of individuals being individuals being possessed, I don't think we have a, an example of an entire city no. being possessed. Uh, that was uh, that was not in the uh, making there. And um, yeah, how do you possess an entire city? Do you possess <laughs> the buildings, or are they just all the people? I don't know. Be odd. Um, we have some uh, difficult times going on right now uh, in our world and in our country, and. Uh, uh, there might be some who would say it's because uh, you know Satan has taken over and uh, sent out his his demons into the world and they are possessing the minds and bodies of of folks to do the things that they do and I think um, Mr. Clayton comes across pretty clearly uh, that this was prophesied that it would take place at the coming of the Messiah and that it would end following the establish, uh, establishment of his kingdom. Um, 
And let me draw um, a, a distinction here between, uh, and he does this for us as well, between being truly demon-possessed, as we have the examples we do uh, in, in the Gospels, multiple examples uh, that he listed for us there, um, versus being influenced by Satan. Those individuals who uh, were truly demon-possessed um, had no control, had no, no uh, free will, had no um, volition, choice um, to be anything other than demon-possessed. And I don't know what a demon-possessed person was like on a day-to-day -day basis. As, we, as he mentioned, there were some that were, were more passive, that caused blindness and, and dumbness and uh, the inability to speak um, versus those who um, were extremely violent, like the sons of Sceva and the uh, one who, uh, Legion, mm -hmm. um, there, were uh, totally, not only out of control, but extremely more powerful than the average Joe um, or Joseph or, you know, whoever uh, you might have been in in the first century. So um, those, that was a, a specific example, and those were specific examples of what a person who was demon-possessed um, was, was like and, and was all about. Being influenced by Satan, sin, as the scriptures uh, talk about it, is common to all men. Um, being subjected, subjected to temptation is common to all men. Jesus was subjected to temptation. We know back in uh, Matthew 4th chapter where <coughs> he, uh, after his baptism, uh, goes into the wilderness and is tempted in three uh, major ways there and uh, offers, Satan offers Jesus um, <coughs> power and control over uh, unbelievable uh, systems and places and, and kingdoms uh, of this earth all to which Jesus quoted scripture back to him that says can't do that was his that was his or won't do um, if it wasn't possible for Jesus to sin then he can't identify with us who can and do sin so it was possible for Jesus to sin he just did not and he was our only example of one who has been able to uh, fulfill that role in that life uh, on this earth. And as a result, he becomes our perfect uh, sacrifice, that unblemished lamb uh, of God who was sacrificed for our sins. Interestingly, and I'm sure many of you have heard a lesson on this, um, what is it, First John 2, uh, all that is in the world... Oh, yeah. yeah, First John 2, it says this. <clears throat> we 
Oops, that's not it. It's the one, uh, this is all that is in the world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and pride of life. It's in First John. Maybe it's in Second John or Third John. First John 2.16. Two sixteen. Oh, it was right there. I was right there reading it. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't see it. I even have written in my in my paragraph there one, two, three. <laughs> the things that Jesus encountered uh, at the hand of Satan in in the in the way of temptation lay right on top of John's statement here. In First uh, John two, verse fifteen says, "Do not love the world, nor the things in the world." You know, if Jesus loved the world and the things in the world, he could have had all of that. If Satan was indeed powerful enough to give that to him, um, and if he wasn't, it wasn't much of a temptation. It was just a <laughs> a proposal. Uh, but but if it, if he did indeed have that, Jesus could have said, "Okay, I'll take that one." Uh, give me another one and but he didn't do that he resisted because he did not love the world more than he loved his father it says do not love the world nor the things of the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him so there's a direct contrast there between loving the world and loving the father and pleasing the father then it says for all that is in the world that could be saying there's a lot in this world to love. Or he could be setting up the rest of this verse. Here is what that world is all about. And that's what I think more so he's saying here. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We don't have time to go back into those three um, temptations that Satan offered him. But if you'll look in Matthew 4 at those temptations and how Jesus responds and then go back and look at 1 John 2, uh, 16, you'll see that he tempted Jesus with lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And it's interesting that John says, you know, that pretty well says it. That pretty well encapsulates all that there is for Satan to work with. He appeals to our fleshly desires, physical fleshly desires. He appeals to those things um, in our eyes and in our sight that appeal to us. And he appeals to our egos. He appeals to our pride uh, in this life. And now that I think about it, Genesis 2 does the same thing. If you go back and look at Adam and Eve, well, let's just do that real quickly because because this is either an amazing, amazing coincidence <laughs> not Genesis 3, excuse me or it is an enduring statement by God from the beginning of his scriptures to almost the very end of his scriptures that this is what the world has to offer why would you choose what the world has to offer over what I, God, have to offer. We know that in the in the Garden of Eden, um, God said, have at it. I mean, this, this place is yours, except there's only one thing you cannot do. Eat of the tree that's in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And in uh, the third chapter, we have Satan tempting Eve and just direct, directly contradicting God. Eve says, no, we can't eat from this tree because God says that in the day that we do, uh, we'll die. Satan, in his um, inimitable um, fashion, says, I'm not going to die. He just doesn't want you to be like him. For God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like uh, God and know good and evil. And we'll watch this. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, that it was a light to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise, ego, the pride of life. What an amazing, amazing coincidence that the very first temptation contains all three of those. Jesus' temptation contains all three of those. And then John, in, in the book of 1 John 2, says, that pretty well sums it up. These are the things that tempt man. The three major categories. You could break down uh, you know, into maybe smaller categories under these, but I think all sin is going to fall under one of these, or at least be related to one of these three. Well, I got off track on it. Do you want to offer anything? I think that's, I think that's solid. So, I mean, we watch our egos and watch what we take in uh, via our eyes and, and uh, what we want. I can filter out a whole lot of temptation. It's a good find. The, um, the things that he mentioned about uh, the, uh, the old the uh, things that occurred in the New Testament um, I don't need to go over those in detail uh, other than to um, probably just kind of echo what we just talked about um, this world the challenge for mankind the situation even before apparently before the world was created that Satan and some of the others there decided to choose evil over good and this battle that contended there ended not good for Satan and the demons for all eternity and he gave us the, the explanation behind that because there is no time doesn't have time to change his mind. It was a an eternal decision. Um, and so, um, there's this idea that there's a struggle between good and evil. Um, Daniel, the latter chapters of Daniel talk about that. Revelation, um, uh, under one primary interpretation of Revelation, is that's what that whole thing is about, is the struggle between good and evil. And... Paul mentions the struggle that he have had uh, in his life. And here's Paul, and, I, and I, I read that section where he talks about his, his um, desire, mm -hmm. desires versus what he actually does in his attempts to control this battle between the flesh and the spirit, as he calls it. And that's good over evil, uh, once again. Um, 
if you can find that and and read it, that w- that would be good. I it was it was always interesting to me how in the King James version it was a little more confusing uh, than in some of the other the versions. That that which I would I do not. That which I would not do I do. Yeah. Um, yeah um, so let's see. He picks up in verse. 15 says, For I do not understand my own actions. It's Romans 7, uh, 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That's it. And and he had the same struggle um, that we all do. Um... I once showed a preacher in <clears throat> um, talking with his, his boys, and I may have mentioned this. No, I think it was in, in my online class. Um, he has uh, two young boys, and, and uh, the wife, I believe, had, had departed, and he was raising them by himself, and they got up into their teens. And he, he sat down with them one day, and he says, Boys, he says, life is a series of choices. He says, you're going to be faced with a lot of choices in this life. And you're going to be making choices in this life. But there's one thing that you need to understand and be aware of. Choices have consequences. He says, so as you go through life and as you face these choices, and a lot of times these choices are benign, but many times they are the choice between doing right and doing wrong. He says, just know that there are consequences on both sides of that. Choice for the wrong is going to be not good for you. Choices on the right side has a lot better outcome for you, even if it's not realized um, immediately. So life is uh, a series of choices. It uh, Life in, engages us in this fleshly and spiritual battle uh, within us to do the will of God versus do the will of Satan, the will of evil or sin. He talked about free moral agency, and that is a term that is, you know, that, that is that's tossed out a lot uh, in these kind of discussions when we talk about uh, the influence of, of evil in our lives. And an agent is, uh, I just looked it up a while ago, it, it, it is, the first definition was an individual who operates on behalf of another. The second definition said um, an individual, and a person or thing who plays an active role in producing an effect. We are agents. We are our own agents. We act and produce effects in our life on a daily and maybe even hourly uh, or, or um, minute or even second uh, way. We, we produce effects. Our behaviors have outcomes or consequences. The idea of it being moral is this choice between right and wrong, and that's all moral uh, means, good and bad right and wrong. And it is interesting that people will use that phrase, um, morals and morality, 
and they will claim that, well, there is no standard for what is right or wrong, good or bad. Um, but it is interesting that every society has codes of conduct that, you know, control our baser uh, instincts, um, our giving in to those uh, lust of the eye, lust, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life that influence someone else, my next door neighbor. So there is an ultimate good and bad. There is an ultimate right and wrong that we as agents have the ability to choose. And then the third part of that, that, that phrase is the free part, the free moral agency. And he talked about this uh, in, in the sense of demons, that demons totally controlled the person, in, at least in several of those cases. The person was unable to uh, function as a normal, anything, any semblance of normality or normalcy in their lives because this demon had total possession of them. Think about the demon who possessed the little boy, he threw him into the river, he threw him into the, the fire. fire. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, you know, the, the, the legion, I believe he uh, cut himself. Yeah. Um, you know, howled just all howled all hours of the night, just made... Really bad neighbor. <laughs> bad neighbor. <laughs> he really made the people's lives miserable. And so when Jesus comes to that town, the first thing they do is, please take care of Legion. And so Jesus does. Um, so this idea of free moral agency is an important concept. And it's an important concept in the Bible because... God has set it up that we are his creation. He has created within us something that is akin to his image. Let us make man in our own image. And so a lot of discussion about what that is, but I, have, I feel that it is this innate desire this innate connection with something higher than we are. And our ability, our efforts to let that control us over the other side of us, which wants to satisfy the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, creates this, not only this eternal battle between good and evil, but it is, an, it is a battle within each of us between choosing to do right and choosing to satisfy self in a variety of ways. So free moral agency is key to, as Clayton says, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Each of us will be accountable in the day of the Lord for the deeds that are committed in this body and how we have responded to his, his word, his will. You know, there's an interesting statement uh, during or just prior to the establishing uh, or the institution of the Lord's Supper when Jesus is with his apostles in the upper room. Um, he does the washing of the feet. He um, answers the question after he has made the statement, one of you will betray me. And he is asked, is it I? 
as it I, as it I, as it I. And, and I think John leans over and says, uh, who is it? And Jesus says, the one who dips with me, takes the bread and dips with me in, in the uh, fluid or gravy or whatever it was <laughs> that they had there the, uh, that they uh, ate their bread with. And it was Satan. And Judas. so Judas, <laughs> Satan was involved <laughs> right. because my point is this. It says, oh, Jesus looked at Judas and, sa and said, what you do, do quickly. Yeah. Go now. John includes that little tidbit for us and Satan entered him at that point. Bingo. Yeah. He stole my line. <laughs> <laughs> That's the point. It says Satan entered him. Now, uh, the question is, so he hadn't been in operating in him up until that point? I believe he had. Yeah, he got Satan, Satan went to the Jewish leaders and said, hey, you want Jesus? I can deliver him. Yeah. <laughs> One of his apostles. Um, but it'll cost you. They said, okay, we'll give you uh, 30 pieces of silver. Judas uh, says, that'll do. That's good enough. And and uh, Chris and I were talking ahead of time. What was in Judas's mind? Was, was it was it just that Satan entered him? No, Satan was already in him. Satan may have turned up the juice at that point, uh, or maybe Judas just gave totally over himself, totally over to being committed to this idea of betraying Jesus. I think once you go so far down a sinful route. There's only, it's incredibly difficult to come back. Absolutely. I think you can, but I think it's incredibly difficult to come back. I'm, I'm guessing Judas had hit that turnpike, you know, and it. Yeah, so um, I don't think when it says Satan entered Judas, uh, the scriptures are trying to suggest that Satan wasn't already operating in, in Judas. It's just that the plot was um, complete. Or that he took away his free will at that point. Mm -hmm. Judas still had an option. Right to not betray. You know, if Jesus is looking me in the eye and he's just said, one of you are going to betray right. me, Judas had to know, at least at, on one level, that that was going to have consequences. I, I told Chris, he might have thought, well, you know, here's the Messiah. I mean, he, they're not going to do anything to him. He can, you know, he can overcome the world. He yeah. can establish his kingdom right now and wipe out you know this this whole battalion that that I'm that I'm going to bring to him. Uh, I don't know what was going through Judas's mind. However, he rationalized it. Um, it was a bad choice, and and he had to know that this was not going to uh, do well, uh, come out well for him. And not only that, um, very few people named their children Judas. Right. It has uh, had enduring impact um, on his we'll call it a legacy um his, his 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 influence and we also know that his behavior um allowed god to carry out his will as far as his son was concerned which for us is a fantastic uh outcome the evil that judas did turned into a great good the greatest good uh, that has ever been um, done on behalf of man uh with the greatest outcome by the way, um, you know, if we have been given, as First Peter 3.15 tells us, everything that pertains to life and godliness, and if demons are still in this world and we are uh, going to have to deal with them, 
Clayton makes a very good good point. He provides no, zero instruction for how we overcome them. Not only has he taken away the Son of God who could cast them out, not only has he taken away the apostles who the Son of God endowed with the ability to cast them out, he put an end to the ability to do so. So, without taking away demons, we would have an entire history of people being demon-possessed. And they would still be around today, and they would still be in our neighbors, and they would still be just everywhere. God used them to allow Jesus to demonstrate not only did he have power over the things of this world, he had power over the things of another world, the underworld. And uh, that power was absolute. The authority was absolute. We're about to head down to our last few minutes here, and I wanted to make these final statements. God requires of uh, us, requires us to be responsible. Our choices are not uncontrollable in this life. They're not. They're not. Uh, because we are demon-possessed, we still are responsible for our behaviors. We are not demon-possessed. So uh, being demon-possessed would take that responsibility away from us. Satan cannot consume us and make us sin without our permission. We are complicit in our sins. Satan, evil, if you want to call it, the powers of sin influence us because we are human and because we are tempted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Everyone has those temptations. The power of Satan, Jesus overcame. Yes, he came to this world so that man would not have to die and stay dead. Jesus rose and we likewise will rise in that day and be with him forever. But not only did he give us the power of over death through his sacrifice on the cross, he gave us something to inspire us, if we use it, to overcome Satan on a day-to-day -day basis and within our lives on a regular basis. So, yeah, Jesus destroyed the power of Satan over death and hell and over influencing us in this life if we will take advantage of it. The more we know about God, the more we read about Him, the easier it will be to resist sin. It tells us to resist sin, resist evil, resist the devil and he'll flee from us. I don't know why he'd say that if it wasn't true. So, there we are. Next week, uh, we enter into a new uh, set. Uh, I think it's a, a two-part series uh, next week. And, um, as, um, and that, that, that situation will be taped uh, for us. I'm going to be out of town, and so it will be taped so there won't be any real-time interaction if you, if you choose to do so. So come back and be with us next week at 4 o'clock for another session of Clayton. Does God exist? Thank you.